Thank You for This Consult. I'm Allie. And I'm Anna. And today we'll be talking about um, two separate topics that are actually related, um, misophonia and synesthesia, which if they sound like foreign language words, it's okay. We will clear that right up for you. Um, First, we have a guest, someone special that we would like to introduce that'll be um, sitting in this podcast with us. So today we have Jonah with us, which like how I know so many of you, we met in my DMs on Instagram. Um, But anyways, sometimes you meet people in your DMs and you're like, "Eh, whatever. But then his brother sent me this song they made with their band, Great White Black. And I was like, oh, my God, these guys are so talented. Yes. I have to talk to this person. By the way, if you are not on my Instagram and didn't catch my incessant posting of Great White Black, Great White Black, you can find it on whatever streaming service you're using to listen to this. So you should check it out. Jonah has also been kind enough to help us with the production of this podcast because we need all of the help. (laughs) YouTube videos can only help me so much and I'm still quite confused and there's a reason I became a psychiatrist and not an engineer. So, but Jonah also happens to have some personal experience with our topics today. So he will be joining us as our first official guest. What an honor. Hello. (laughs) Um, So, Uh, You know, I think an excellent, um, you know, a good reason that we have Jonah here, and I'll also share my experience, is to kind of make these topics seem a little bit more normal and more common. And I think this will, you know, you'll see why as we go on. So I'm going to read you a couple of blurbs. Um, This is from a BBC News article. Someone takes a bite of an apple. There's a drawn-out crunch as the teeth break through the tough skin of the fruit. The noise is unbearable for the 28-year-old Margot Noel. Quote, I have to leave or cover my ears. I just cannot hear it, end quote. It puts me in a state of distress. It makes me really anxious. My body feels there's danger. I need to leave or I need to protect myself. If someone had a gun and they were pointing it at me, I would feel exactly the same way. And then this from um, another article. Uh, for oh, I think it's the same article. For 18-year-old high school senior Ellie Rapp of Pittsburgh, the sound of her family chewing their dinner can be unbearable. Quote, my heart starts to pound. I go one of two ways. I either start to cry or I just get really intensely angry. It's really intense. I mean, it's as if you're going to die, she says. What I'm describing is a phenomenon called misophonia, or hatred of sound. And now, um, so I guess I'll start. I, I, no, I, this is me through and through. I get this. Um, what's weird you know, what my something that really, I don't want to say triggers me, but really gets me upset, and I think this is a good example of it, is if someone's wearing oxygen and it makes that clicking noise as the oxygen goes through the, the, the nasal cannula, yeah. I don't know what it is. And I always thought it was because I'm counting until the next burst goes through, and I don't know what it is. I have nothing against anybody of any... <laughs> any type of disability or health issue, but I, that sound drives me crazy and chewing. And there is a level of some, like, oh, chew with your mouth closed. But even when people's mouth are closed, I, I just, it drives me crazy. I can't think about anything else but this sound. And when I found that there was a word for it and, you know, millions of other people, um, including Jonah, that had the same, you know, the same issue, I, I definitely was very interested um, and Jonah, can you kind of share uh, your experience? Because this is best defined by example. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I'll remember. This has really happened to me in different ways throughout my life. And there's been a lot of different triggers. So a lot of what you're describing in, in your um, blurbs were, were kind of accurate. And I've experienced very similar things. I always, well, first of all, I always thought I was like a 
jerk or like there was something like I never knew that this was a thing. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say like maybe like 12 or 13 years ago, like my mom has misophonia too. And she was like, oh, by the way, I was like Googling this stuff because I wanted to know that I'm not crazy. Yeah. And she's like, this is actually a thing that mm-hmm. we both have because she knows very well that I've had it my whole life. And I'll tell you sort sort of how that came to light, which is um, when I was young, I was super sensitive to hearing other people eating. So again, like you said, like everybody, no one likes when people chew with their mouth open. No one likes like nails on a chalkboard, but mm. like, does it make them feel like their head's going to explode? I don't know. Um, I used to build walls when we, when we had breakfast, we had like a, like a counter with stools mm-hmm. and I would take like eight cereal boxes and build walls around them and, and duck into the cereal box. So I couldn't hear other people chewing. That is so symbolic. <laughs> I mean, sure. <laughs> did it, did it work? No, but like it, it, I don't know. I don't remember. Maybe it worked. It must've to some degree, but like if then people tried to penetrate the wall, I would get like oh, real God. pissed because <laughs> I'd be, I, I'd like make grumbling noises and stuff because right. I just couldn't deal with people crunching cheerio, like Cheerios and stuff like directly in my ear. So that's one thing that's big. Um, since then, like over the last few years, I'd say some of this stuff has chilled out a little bit Yeah. now that I'm in my thirties, but, and I couldn't necessarily explain why. No. But so the two, I'll say the two that still bother me, mm-hmm. um, whispering. So, so for me, some of this is attached to what I perceive as maybe as like a motive. So I know some of it's like fight or flight stuff with like yes. a natural reaction to like a noise in the wild that makes you think you're in danger. Yes. Mine is, I think very attached to what I perceive as a motive. So like whispering seems like very efforted to me, like someone trying really hard to do something in a certain way. And it just comes out like, I don't know. It's like, it makes like, there's been times where people think it's really funny to, to mess with me and just yeah. keep whispering at me. And I'm like, I have to leave or I have, or I get really mad. And no. like, I'm a pretty chill person. I don't get mad. Yeah. So I do get, I, I mean, I'm, I'm better at it now. But for years, like if someone whispered to me, I was like, oh, I get, I have to leave the room. I have to get the hell out of here. Like this is ridiculous. Yeah. The other thing too that also seems kind of just like that same, uh, like not necessarily motive, but in this case, it almost seems like like a lack of self awareness that kind of bothers me with this. Is I don't know if I've heard this one before, but when I'm in the uh, maybe, but when I'm in the movie theater. And there's the previews. And then in between previews, the theater is very quiet. And then you hear everyone crinkling the candy wrappers. Oh, my God. I feel like I'm, I'm like, want to just get up and, like, start screaming at people or leave the theater or tell everyone to do something to themselves. Jonah, it's, it's <laughs> as if it's as if you read my notes, which yeah. I have in a secret locked document on my, <laughs> my computer. I am going to touch on every single one of those things okay. that you just said. Um from the movie theater to the fight or flight to the internal awareness. Oh my god! I, yeah. You, we're gonna we're gonna get to all of it. Okay. Anything else? Um, I mean, it's just fun. The last thing I'll say is that as Anna introduced, uh, as she introduced me, I am a musician, mm-hmm. and I am extremely affected by sound in a positive way too. There you go. So, like, I always tell people that my religion is melody. And, and harmonics, and it's true. Um, I am extremely, even though my hearing's half gone because I've seen a lot of heavy metal shows. <laughs> Worth it. Even like I can't hear well, but what I hear, I can dissect fairly well, mm-hmm. and I'm still sensitive to sound in that way. Um, and music is extremely therapeutic for me and extremely meaningful to me. So it's, I just have like weird things with a lot of elements of my senses. So. I think it's all part of the same thing, and and I, and maybe you have something more to say about this piece. But I, I think, in my experience, some people with some of these same sensitivities are also like artistic or creative people. Exactly. Yeah. And that actually segues nicely into the next topic as well. So um, I just want to define some words that I'm going to use because I need to be a little bit more aware of you know medical jargon, and and I think it's just helpful. Um, So tinnitus uh, is ringing in one or both ears. Uh, This one, the limbic system, is an area of connected structures in the brain responsible for regulating emotions, memory, primitive uh, motivations like hunger or sex. Um, Hyperacusis is perceiving noise uh, louder than they actually are. And then the sympathetic nervous system 
is a branch of uh, is a branch of the nervous system responsible for the fight or flight mechanism, kind of like a, a survival kind of mode um, that's activated or suppressed if you're depending on if you're in a stressful situation or in kind of like a relaxation mode. So, and I think just by defining the terms, I think you know where we're going. So. What is misophonia? Um, it's also been termed selective sound sensitivity. Um, it is a, it's a heightened uh, bodily response um, or level of arousal uh, causing a negative emotional reaction, including anger or irritation um, due to decreased tolerance for specific sounds um, that we'll call triggers uh, made from both living beings and inanimate objects. So this is, this is interesting to kind of break down these triggers. Uh, they're usually pattern-based, again, with the, you know, the, need, the oxygen going off or chewing, um, and it doesn't, ha- it doesn't matter how loud or soft they are. So I kind of separated them into three categories. This is on my own. I'm not an expert at all. Um, mouth sounds like chewing, throat clearing, slurping, breathing, or lip snacking. Other body, like finger tapping or foot shuffling, which goes back to our first episode. Um, if you put somebody with misophonia in the same room with somebody who had akesthesia, I, or with tardive dyskinesia, I, I'm so excited to hear your input. You know, I am one of those people who is constantly fidgeting. You know, I don't notice it, but my leg will be moving up and down, and people will call me out on that. And now I'm wondering, do these are these people extra sensitive? Because to me, it's like almost like a. Uh, I think it's like a self-simulatory behavior, right? Uh, you know, because I'll be in like something boring, like a lecture. Yeah. No offense to my attending, <laughs> but I'll I'll do this stuff to sort of like I have to fidget, I have to do something. Honestly, my like main thing I do is play with my cell phone. But let's say I'm in a situation where I can't play with my cell phone and do something else. I'm going to be tapping or something right. like that. And now I'm going to think about that a little more. Yeah, there's actually another word for that. I'll tell you in a second. Um, so bot- other body parts and then objects, pen clicking and keyboard tapping, which I don't know if objects need to be separated from something that a person is doing. Um, but regardless, uh, I think the response is the same. So um, the re- misophonic responses are anxiety, disgust, avoidance, escape behavior, feeling overwhelmed or overloaded, which uh, may then lead to anger outbursts. So the theory in a lot of research that I read is that um, kind of use the anxiety and just kind of annoyance then leads to anger. Anger isn't typically the initial response. Um, and, you know, this may severely impair uh, someone's daily life. It can start as early as five years of age, um, usually starts around 12 years. Um, and the key is that no one around you is getting upset over these same sounds. Um, so what you were describing with the foot tapping annoying people, that is a separate word, and that is misokinesia. And it's when someone is triggered by movements, repetitive movements, such as someone bouncing their leg up and down, uh, but many times involves the face or other visual stimuli, such as a fan spinning, windshield wipers, or lights. And I do notice if I'm interviewing a patient who has tardive dyskinesia, sometimes I just, I'm just focused on their mouth. I'm like, I can't, I have to keep looking at it. Um, so, you know, I, it's, I, I just wonder if there is a connection between things of the face or that's just how people express themselves and that being a trigger. If it has, like, I don't know what it is about the mouth or the nose mm-hmm. that is especially distressing. Um, so I don't know if that's, if that's evolutionary. Um, I just think that that's, that's very interesting. So um, family members can be triggers uh, to the misophonic sufferers. Um, and I don't know if this is because you spend most of your time eating with your family or does it have to do with some type of emotional connection? Um, but uh, they can... Well, yeah, I was going to no. say, or in my case, they knew it bothered me, so they thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, I mean... I know, but you know, someone you gotta eat. You know, it's almost like the it it people who suffer from this feel very guilty about having these these feelings. They're not when you're a little kid. You know, you're like, oh, you know, 
my little brother's he's doing that on purpose. He's bothering me. But is there some truth to it? You know, is it they can't control what they're they're chewing and you can't control your response to it. Mm -hmm. And then I wonder, like, too, if you really have deal with this on this extent, what is it like dealing with someone who has tics? Because I don't have any of this. Like, I don't think I have any. It's very hard for me to understand how sounds could make someone so angry they would want to kill someone. But I do have an example. <clears throat> someone I was in a very serious relationship with, looking back, I think they had tics. And they would do this one thing where they would blow their nose into their hand like every 10 minutes and it drove me fucking crazy. <laughs> I was like, you have to stop doing that. That is so gross. And it, and they were like, oh, I can't, like, I can't stop. They would, and like, looking back, it was weird because I had this lecture on Tourette's, you know, in residency, and I was like, fuck, I didn't put it together. But they probably actually, they had so many little tick things mm -hmm. they did that it was probably like Tourette's, and they were just like undiagnosed. And I felt mildly bad about how annoyed I was over that, but I was so annoyed, like it made me lose my attraction to them. I couldn't be attracted to them anymore, <gasps> and I. Once again, I don't have this, but, like, people's voices are very important to me. And I realize that the reason why, like, a lot of people who are single my age, they can use dating apps, I can't. Because if I don't like someone's voice, I can't be attracted to them. I have to, like, really be into their voice. And it's also, like, my view of someone is is very, like, connected to their voice and how they sound and if they're, like, a good speaker. Um, and... This is obviously nothing to that extent, but those are just things I picked up like about myself and what bothers me or what I like. What about accents? Um, well, I have some I like more than others, but I wouldn't say that any bother me. Most I sort of like, like I love like who doesn't love a good Australian accent oh, or something. Like. My Siri is actually a New Zealand male. Yes. <laughs> That's a good one. Actually, I've made a lot of friends on Instagram from these countries. And, like, whenever I watch their stories, I'm just like, oh, I love your voice. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so that, you know, that's basically, I think, it's best defined by example. So, um, you know, a lot of the research, and I'll, I'll let you know those articles later if anyone's interested, but it, the sample sizes are not very large, and they definitely need, you know, a larger amount of people studied to draw broader conclusions, but I think there's still a few good points that we can um, kind of draw. So the, you know, kind of the expert on this is um, Paul uh, Jastroboff, and he is a, a professor of otolaryngology, um, or like ear, nose, and throat at Emory University, and he's regarded uh, for his research in uh, tinnitus and hyperacusis. So he um, he his model states that uh, tinnitus arises from abnormal patterns of uh, nerve activity in the areas of the brain uh, that are responsible for sound, um, all the way to the inner ear. Um, so, you know. Do it just can cause an, a negative reaction because uh, you pay more attention to the ringing sounds, and because you're paying more attention, they bother you more. And there is, um, you know, associative learning between this ringing sound and your negative responses. Um, Anna, would you mind going into associative and conditional responses and learning? You know, I. I'm not too familiar with all of this, but I do know that if someone has, it's sort of like in general, people can be conditioned to associate anything with something. Like, for example, if someone eats a food and it makes them throw up, often like being around that food can make them like nauseous, exactly, right? right? So the same thing with like a sound or anything like that. If you have a bad experience with it, it's like tainted and anything that like sort of triggers in quotes right. that memory can right. bring up those feelings that or experience whatever negative thing you experienced the first time I think that's exactly you know a good example and uh, Jastroboff uh, hypothesized that these misophonic responses were developed and maintained via associative learning um, and you know the responses to the triggers uh can be grounded in neurophysiological symptoms that are uh, systems that are responsible for emotion, memory, and learning. So, 
Why does the word die come up so often in the descriptions that I had given before? Um, and, you know, wh why the feeling of ur the urge to kill, the urge to flee? Um, and, you know, the answer could be due to inactivation of the fight-or-flight mechanism that's inappropriately being activated. If you're eating... Um, let's say Reese's Puffs or Lucky Charms <laughs> on a Saturday morning, just like, you know, waiting to go to soccer practice, why would that situation need to trigger a survival response? Um, so these are just inappropriate connections in our brain that are, you know, that have come about and are being maintained by this, you know, by pairing the negative response to the trigger. Um, so... The autonomic nervous system, I alluded to it earlier, it is responsible for, it's a very primitive thing. Are we going to flee the scene or fight for our lives? Then we have to be, you know, at attention and our eyes have to be looking and all digestion stops and our heart rate is increased and our blood vessels are dilated, we're ready to go. Or are we, that's the sympathetic, or are we parasympathetic? Are we resting? Are we digesting? We're kind of in a state where the body is kind of preparing for possibly having to run away in the future. We're digesting our food. Everything's kind of calmed down. We're not devoting energy to systems in the body that would, you know, need us to run away or fight. We're kind of just conserving. So, you know, why, you know, why do these sounds cause us to rev up this system? Um, and it has to do with kind of the brain, obviously, or I wouldn't be talking about it. So, um, you know, this is a little anatomy heavy, and I will try to kind of work through this. Um, so it, it has to do with the connections within the brain. And there is theory that there is hyperconnectivity between the auditory cortex, where kind of sound is processed, and the limbic system where emotions are processed. Um, and it's probably no coincidence that they're in close proximity. And this is why certain smells evoke memories. Why we, you say Thanksgiving, we can picture what that smells like, or you smell barbecue, you know, outside and, and you, you just, you just, you know, you're taken back to the summer. Um, my, I have a, a cousin who uh, unfortunately lost his father. He was at a pretty young age, and he told me that um, you know we were talking about our you know smoking, and he said he loves the smell of cigarettes, although he's not a smoker himself, because the smell of cigarettes reminds him of his father, who would smoke, and you know he'd sit with him watching TV, and and it was like a positive memory. This is also leads me to um, auditory or. Um, olfactory cortex, the smelling system in rats is actually very, very um, highly complex, like more so than us, because rats who mostly live in subways have to smell every little thing. If you see them scurrying, they smell this and they run away, they smell that because they have to match smells with, was this a healthy food? Did Is this poison? They have to kind of keep a log in their brain of what's healthy and what's not. So they actually have a very advanced um, smelling uh, system. And uh, this is thought to be, pr uh, it's a little controversial whether it's primitive or not, but it's very similar to pheromones and, you know, how we smell people on a, you know, on subconscious level and we're attracted to them. So all of this is kind of beyond our conscious control or, you know, our voluntary control. This is just our old brain kind of living in a new world. So um, a couple of other things I wanted to just define, a salience network. Um, and this is a brain structure that tells an individual to pay attention and turn their attention to an important stimulus that is relevant, either behaviorally or meaningful. So, um, for example, if I have something in the microwave, I'm listening to hear when the microwave goes off. I'm assigning salience to the microwave. So I'm listening to your story, Anna, but I'm like one ear is on the mm -hmm. microwave. So I'm, assi I'm assi assigning importance to that. Um, and then something called the default mode network, which is a group of connected neurons that are active during our downtime. So this just maintains us in a low level of consciousness. You know, we're, you know, we're again, conserving. We're just, you know, 
chilling. So um, it's during uh, these times that we may be daydreaming, um, kind of thinking about what we're going to do next, um, that we, you know, it's a good example. We're just kind of vegging, you know, not thinking about anything, no goal, just different things popping in our mind that we can't turn off. So I'll get to, I'll kind of wrap all why this is important. So some testing was done, actually a number of studies were done um, similar to a lie detector test called a galvanic skin response. And it measures the changes in the electrical characteristics of the skin, like sweating, heart rate, things like, well, heart rate was measured separately. So um, these were measured uh, to, in many studies, to see if individuals, when they hear their trigger sounds, actually respond with an increase in awareness and increase their autonomic nervous system. So one such study was done by uh, Kumar that misophonics have a higher, um, these scores are higher when they hear their trigger sounds. Um, and another study was done by Edelstein in 2013 that uh, studied uh, different adversive sounds with misophonics versus people who did not. and experienced misophonia via self-reporting, meaning they said whether or not they did. Um, and this data showed a, a positive correlation between the level of um, aversiveness, meaning how triggered the auditory stimulus was, and the skin conductance and the heart rate. So this is kind of all physical proof that things happen in your body when you hear these sounds. Now, Kumar studied that misophonics also have a higher interoceptive sensibility, um, meaning that they are more body conscious. They're more aware of what's going on inside them, and they perceive their bodies differently. And this was thought to be mediated by the same structure that kind of assigned the salience or important to, importance to different uh, sounds in the environment. So it's not and it's not clear whether um, misophonia is a cause or a consequence of this interoception, but um, it's found that people who suffer from this also are just more aware of even their internal stimuli. So a question I had was, are people just annoyed or are they, you know, truly, is this truly kind of like a, a disorder? But um, studies, again, done by Kumar used MRIs, um, that show where which parts of the brain are working at, you know, different thresholds called uh, functional MRI, um, and and kind of showed that the trigger sounds in misophonics were um, were would highlight the area where unpleasant sounds did not. So this is truly um, kind of relevant just for this type of sound. So um, basically, just to sum up all the data. The, all of these studies of the brain uh, showed that the a structure called the anterior insular cortex, which regulates our heart rate and our, our autonomic system, um, is kind of the hub of this salience network, meaning it's, it's what assigns what we're listening to at what time. Um, so it's more strongly activated in misophonics in response to the trigger sounds. So Basically, what this means is that people with misophonia are attributing more importance to their misophonic trigger sounds. So a, a salience network varies from person to person. Um, if you're a Knicks fan and I'm not a Knicks fan and the Knicks game is on in the background, you're paying attention to it and I couldn't even tell you what's on TV. Um, so I have not assigned the salience that you have to this game. I just, it's not important to my life. I don't need to see them lose every week. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, um, you know, it also, there is a stronger coupling between the default mo mode network and the insular cortex, meaning that they're not, you're not always turned off. You're always on some level listening for these sounds, which is so exhausting to think for me. So, um. You know, those are kind of the, the two theories in terms of brain anatomy. So um, just to go into some comorbidities, meaning what other psychiatric illnesses is this related to? And it's right now thought to be a unique entity, but comorbid with multiple conditions, meaning it can be seen with things like um, OCD, PTSD, ADHD, Tourette's, um, 
and it can be associated with sensory over-responsivity, which is a sensory processing disorder, um, but that's more a response or intolerance to louder, unexplained noises. So now I'm using words like sensitive, hypersensitive. Um, Anna, I was wondering, based on what I just described, how would you distinguish this from, if at all, from somebody with um, a sensory, hypersensory um, processing um, and autistic spectrum disorders, and I'm like, this is a mouthful. Um, is it the same or is it different? So with autism, you know, and I think first off we need to like sort of, so the autism term has turned into sort of like an umbrella term. Mm -hmm. And so what a lot of people think of when they hear autism is not what it actually is. Like a lot of people will hear it and they'll think of a cognitive disability. Mm -hmm. And I... This is sort of separate, but I think it's sort of important to know the reason so many people with cognitive disabilities are labeled as autistic is not actually because they have autism spectrum disorder. It's because um, it's for financial reasons, and there's a lot more coverage that they can get in the school system or other things if they are labeled that instead of having a cognitive disability. So a lot of doctors wanting to do their patients a service to get them the resources that they need will label them as autism spectrum disorder when they really just have a cognitive disability. And so I throw around the term autism a lot and people are like, oh my God. And they think I'm calling someone cognitively disabled, which is not what I'm doing. I'm referring to actual autism. And some of the symptoms with autism, like one of the very prevalent things that I look for is hypersensitivity to sounds. And it does present as, you know, like what you said, like someone who is on the autism spectrum and has this hypersensitivity to sound, a dog barking might really infuriate them. Whereas like for me, I don't even notice right. my brain tunes out, but they're like so angry over the dog barking. And on the same spectrum of things where people who do have hypersensitivity to sound they often have certain sounds that they really like like there is a someone very close to me in my life and I'm pretty positive this person is on the autism spectrum and he really likes house music because he said something about like a certain type when he is there in person there's a vibration that goes through his body he gets a sensation from it I don't really get a sensation from it, so I can't understand, but I can imagine that there's something appealing, but this individual also has a lot of sounds that he really dislikes and like upsets him like a lot more than other people. So I don't know if I really answered your question, but that's like some of the stuff I think about. Yeah, no, I, I think that the consensus is that, you know, they're it's probably the same because, you know, the dog barking, like you said, um, somebody would assign higher salience to yeah. it or is always looking for it. Their default mode network is never truly off. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I definitely... Yeah. yeah. And I think, I think with autism spectrum disorder too, and there's just like a lot of hypersensitivity to all different stimuli. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the big things I would look for to think someone actually has autism spectrum disorder and it's not associated with intelligence. Got it. No, yeah, that's that is a huge, you know, and I'm actually going to go into some some school accommodations, and I want you to tell me if these sound similar to the IEP that I think you're referring to. So just to touch on treatment before we move on, um, they, you know, based on the theory that this is due to associating sounds with reaction, there's been retraining therapies to um, pair these sounds with a positive reaction. How, you may ask, I will tell you, an app, um, three actually that I, I found, um, and I found these from, uh, the, I think the misophonia, uh, .com, um, I think there's like a, so the three apps are, um, the misophonia trigger tamer, uh, for a mere $40, pairs favorite songs uh, or, or you know, sounds with snippets of triggers. You can also get the light version, um, which is free. So basically, 
I this I don't know what it would sound like, but that that's what you know. If that helps, get uh, go for it. I don't know. That's that's a tough one for me because. <laughs> I've broken up with women over them almost ruining my favorite bands for me. So I'm not going to start associating whispers and ring and like uh, rapper crinkling with my favorite music because I'm just going to want to like never listen to my favorite music. <laughs> That's my fear. How did someone ruin your favorite band for you? <laughs> That's gets into musical pet peeves, which is a whole other episode <laughs> or a whole other discussion. Like um, in Wayne's world, when he finally gets the guitar and, and he's, they're like, no stairway. Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> but this was like, I, I don't listen to songs on repeat. So listening to like one of my favorite bands or, or favorite songs by a band on the same like song on repeat or even like having a certain individual uh, rewind in the song to one line that you thought the singer sounded sexy, which by the way, I agree. He did sound sexy, but I didn't want to hear it like 50 million times. <laughs> Yeah, so I tend to upset people because when I like a song, I play it about 200 times in a row. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you can play our song that much. That's fine. I, I did do that. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was on Dropbox, so... Mm. Well, you got the sneak peek, so that's yeah. okay. But one thing that I think is actually... I know you're about to move on to something, nope, but one thing ahead. I think is really interesting is that, in my experience, a lot of this is... is I am admittedly a fairly judgmental human being. And I think a lot of a lot of it for me, the way it strikes me in the moment with these sounds that make me want to have my head explode, um, is very judgmental. Of honestly, like it occurs to me in a very direct kind of second nature way. But it's almost like judging people's intellect based upon their willingness or lack of awareness, self awareness to make these sounds. And I started trying to think about that during what you were describing at various points, and it made me think of like. Um, if you're like hiding and there's people after you like a hundred thousand years ago when it was like caveman clans mm -hmm. killing each other or whatever. Um, and it's like people start whispering. It's like giving your, your spot away or like crinkling of rappers is like leaves crinkling and giving your spot away. Maybe, wow. but like, but the thing is, is that like, I could come up with this stuff and say anything and it could sound right, but who knows? But no, I, I love tying things back to evolution because I feel like that truly is the answer. Maybe. Like, there has to be something, the very most most basic thing in our brain has to be survival. So I think everything can be paired back to it. Yeah. But I, I just think it's interesting because Anna described people on the, that may have some element of the autistic spectrum responding to a dog barking. But every trigger for me is is generated by humans. Humans, same. Like I don't, I can hear like a bus backfiring for an hour. <laughs> I can sleep through someone listening to really bad music that I loathe for like... I don't care. Like, I hate it, but yeah. it doesn't really bother me. I can deal with all kinds of noise, like clicking noises from like air conditioners and stuff. It doesn't, like, I don't oh, care. Yeah, yeah. Everything I hate is human generated. Yeah. 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 I, and you're going to love our next topic. I'm so excited. Wait, but now I'm thinking about my sound issues. Okay. So, <laughs> everything that I do that pisses people off, like, you know, because of last night that I have to sleep with white noise. Yeah. And I can't sleep unless I have a constant sound. It has to be some sort of consistent sound because otherwise I hear my breathing. Mm. And or if someone's sleeping with me or something like that, I'd hear their breathing too. It would drive me crazy. Or other sounds outside. I absolutely cannot. Like, I can only sleep without some sort. Like, I like fans too. I do my white noise because it's easy. I have the app on my phone. It was an amazing experience, by the way. Oh, I'm glad you liked it. Because <laughs> usually I have had people like that I've dated or things like that or people that you know I've been spending a significant amount of time with and they it drove them fucking crazy and I was like oh well this is how I sleep sorry yeah. and I don't know if that I would cause I would call that misophonia because it's just they're trying to sleep and they don't want to be listening to something yeah but yeah. there's something about like more particular with me that if I don't have a consistent sound it bothers me yeah. but I did read, I looked into it online and I was like, why do some people want to sleep with white noise? And like, I do like my weighted blanket. I have like a whole thing going on, <laughs> but it's because it's replicating the in utero environment. Mm -hmm. And so when you were in in utero, you constantly heard the blood pumping from your mom through the placenta. And that was a consistent, like pulsating noise. And then you also were wrapped right. really tightly with a lot of pressure. So, you know, that's... That's where we first learned how to sleep. We all want to go back. <laughs> and I'll and I'll say the best white noise for sleeping is on YouTube. Just loop the video, or there's like different length videos. This is really nerdy, but 
They do. One that's this, the engine noise from the different um, series for Star Trek. So you can listen to the Enterprise <laughs> engine noise the whole time you sleep or Voyager or what have you. I'm going to have to check this out and it's report really, back. It's really good. <laughs> wow. All right. So, okay, let's say pairing it to music isn't your isn't your vibe. You can also pair it to uh, video clips or pictures. Um, that could be on the Visual Trigger Tamer app. Um, I could not find that one. I think it's unavailable. Or um, the last app would be the Misophonia Reflex Finder, where you can record a trigger and play it at very low volumes to dampen your response. Or you can, like, cut the sound into increments and then only listen to a little bit, like, at a time increasing it. So, um, yeah, so those are just, those apps just exemplify um, some of the theories for treating this. Have any of these apps been found liable for, like, homicide yet? Because <laughs> if I recorded someone whispering and then I listened to it all day to try to desensitize myself to it, the next time I saw them, I'd probably want to, like, push them out a window or something. <laughs> yeah, well, that may be why I couldn't find the unavailable ones. <laughs> I did want to say, though, you mentioned the movie theater, which I found on, on a Misophonia website, um, wearing headphones in the movie theater that are typically used for hearing impaired. So you're only hearing the movie and you're not hearing popcorn would be my trigger. It's there. Yeah. Um, or like the ice cubes in the cup rattling. Oh, forget it. It's funny because I'm a cinephile and I go to movies several times a week and I opt for this because it's like it's the whole audio sensory uh, Do you really? experience of the, of the theater that's really screwy. Yeah. Oh my goodness! And and I'm also hyper conscious. You were saying about uh, people mis mis misophonia um, being conscious of their own involvement yes. in it. Yeah, like when I'm in a theater and it's like a quiet part of the movie and I'm crunching something, I'm like, everyone hates me right now. But they might not. Only the misophonics. <laughs> well, it's chronic for me to hate myself. So <laughs> we'll unpack that on a on a different episode. <laughs> I am here. <laughs> So, and lastly, I'll just get, oh, there's also hypnotherapy I wanted to mention. Um, so school accommodations can be made. Um, these are the, these are examples um, that are deemed reasonable accommodations for K through 12 uh, students and honest. Tell me if they sound similar um, to anything that a student who needed, mm -hmm. you know, maybe IEP. So number one, there is no eating, drinking, or gum chewing in the classes that he or she attends, and that will be enforced. Uh, that there is no leaving a classroom without penalty. Uh, this is sometimes necessary when there are too many triggers occurring when they leave the class. So I just feel like that's an interruption, leaving the class. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Scratch that. That he or she be allowed to leave a classroom without say. penalty. <laughs> So if there's too much going on, they can leave and not be in trouble. Uh, that he or she be allowed to use headphones with noise generator app in the class. Um, this may reduce their ability to hear the teacher, but it will often allow he or she to remain in class and do their work. Uh, that he or she be allowed to use headphones and noise generator during tests. That he or she be provided a trigger fee location for testing if needed reasonable that he or she be provided preferred seating to reduce exposure to triggers i can just i can picture that being like i don't want to be next to, <laughs> to the mouth breather um oh or the last one that a transmitter receiver set be provided so that a teacher can wear a microphone and the student can hear the lecture through the headphones yeah the only two ones i don't think really happen is like removing all food and drinks they're not going to do things that affect other students, mm. you know. And then the last one, I can't really imagine a teacher making that type of accommodation. But the other ones, I'm, you know, those things might happen, but rarely. But the other ones, I'm quite familiar with, like the, the, uh, you know, student being able to leave the classroom whenever they want to. Right. Uh, a good example. It's a little bit extreme and a little bit theatrical, but there's a show on Netflix called Atypical, and it's about a kid with autism and. He goes around with his little noise-canceling headphones, and they, uh, when they show him, they like play clips and they make the noises really loud, like they are for him and stuff oh, like that. Wow! So it, I really like the show. I know that it's a little exaggerated, but I enjoy it. Interesting. Yeah, that sounds very relevant. So before we start the next topic, if you're interested in reading more. Um, 
uh, the papers uh, Investigating Misophonia, a review of the empirical literature by uh, Brout et al., um, the Brain Basis for Misophonia uh, by uh, Sukhvinder Kumar et al., and um, another paper was the uh, Phenomenology of Misophonia, Initial Physical and Emotional Responses by uh, Thomas Dozier and Kate Morrison. Also, um, neuroscientificallychallenged.com, uh, the Know Your Brain Default Mode Network blog, and brainscience.com, also misophonia.com. So um, that's where I got all of this information from. And now we're going to talk about synesthesias. This is, you're going to love this, Jonah. I just tell. <laughs> okay. So this is one of my favorite things to talk about. And um, so I always thought uh, everyone had their own internal way of thinking about words or letters or numbers. Um, you know, when you picture the alphabet or you picture integers. I haven't used that word in so long. Yeah, that's a pretty elementary school word. Integers. Wow. <laughs> so for me, like this, this guys, this takes a lot for me to say, but um, numbers have always had genders. Um, and it's consistent every time someone asks me, you know, what's three, a boy, what's 11, a female, like it's just always the same. And this has helped me with math. Um, and one time... And it's just helped me remember things. And one time I was running um, with my team in high school and a car, so we stopped and a car stopped and we thought she saw us. So we proceeded to go and she hit like five out of seven of us, like rolling across the hood. You can laugh. Everyone was totally fine. Um, I looked at the license plate, memorized it. She drove away. It was a hit and run. And, uh, we called the police and I gave them a license plate and she was in trouble. And I always wonder like, what, how did I remember that? What do I have a, you know, a photographic memory? Is it because I assigned personalities and numbers to, to, and genders to numbers or, or what? So, um, you know, I kept that to myself, but I also maybe thought other people may have done the same. Um, and then I met someone in high school who felt that every word had a color, but it wasn't that a red word was red. So fire truck was not necessarily red. Stop sign could be purple. But when he pictured a word or said a word, he thought of a color. So this is called a synesthesia, which means, um, I feel like, kind of just means two, you know, two feelings or sensory things for the same word or idea. So by not my jarbled definition, it's a phenomenon where one perceives one cognitive pathway or idea or object um, with more than one sense. So uh, some sources define it as a disorder. I feel like this gives it a negative connotation. It's really just how people think. Um, I think it's a phenomenon. Um, but it's also really best defined through example. So this, this is so cool. The most common type of synesthesia is assigning a color to a grapheme, and a grapheme is a letter or number. So um, the color can be seen either physically around the letter or number on like a white, a black and white sheet of paper or just in the mind's eye. So now I wonder how many of you are sitting there just realizing that oh my god, there's a name for this thing that I either thought was odd or I thought was completely normal. Um, and again, it, it doesn't interfere with cognition. It doesn't interfere with daily life. It, it just, it's how you think. It's just how your brain is wired, literally. Um, if I hate odd numbers, is that a thing? Yeah, because you're assigning a feeling, an emotion to... Mm-hmm. Or you just, you know, prime numbers are hard. Like, maybe it's just... Well, no, I think it's because I'm really mathematically oriented. Are you? And, like, honestly, math was, like, I was essentially a math whiz. And wow. could have... It would be something where I would have always been the best, whereas, like, I went the men's school around and certainly wasn't the best. <laughs> um, but I think I, oh, I was attracted to even numbers because you could just do so much math with them easier. And the only odd number I like is I love seven, but I think that's because Harry Potter tainted me and it's like, you know, like it's a really good number. 
Jonah, you're the seventh person I met from Instagram. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I'm not Harry Potter, so sorry. It's okay. I, I thought you Always were. Always a disappointment. <laughs> yeah. I'm used to it. We'll, we'll find him. Don't worry. Thank you. So, you know, there is truth. If you thought this was normal, there is truth to that because, um, you know, this is where it gets trippy. Um, quote, the vast majority of people with synesthesia never realize that others don't experience the world in that way, says Professor Julia Simner, who wrote um, Oxford Handbook of Synesthesia. Uh, quote, it's a challenge to it's a challenge to reality. You have your reality, I have mine. And who would have thought that they'd be different? I have a question about this. Okay, I don't know if I'm going to answer it. You may not be able to, (laughs) but you may also have something interesting to say. Um, How does this relate? So the phenomenon you just described, I've experienced hardcore with my emotional reaction to music. I thought you would have. Yeah, yeah. So like I've always had an extremely strong emotional reaction to music. Lots of cliches like shivers down your spine, crying because of how beautiful songs yes. are. Yeah. And then like, I know the internet is full of clickbait, but I've seen this stuff everywhere where it's like articles that are probably just headlines and not really backed by anything significant, but maybe it is. But um, where it's like, actually only X percent of people can really actually have that strong of an emotional reaction to music, like feel shivers down their spines. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely met a lot of people who I'm like, are you a robot? Who don't have that kind yeah. of... Yeah, yeah. Um, And I've experienced that same uh, situation where, like, I grew up thinking everyone had that kind of an emotional response to music. I I was like, it just was so natural to me. I was like, it's magic. That's what real magic is, like, the emotional response we have to music. You are so lucky that, you know, you have that response. I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful thing to appreciate music on that level. Um, and I mean, I'm, I'm kind of jealous. I wish I had that, that kind of visceral reaction to, to any, well, I, I do, but to music. <laughs> Talking about that brought me back when I was in college, I saw Bon Iver and I was literally shaking and crying the whole time. Like my whole body. I've, I've seen a lot of people that I've really liked, but I never had a response. And I didn't even really understand like why I was having this type of response but you know he and still is there's like a lot of his music that took me to like another level and there are some people some other artists like that too but I think when you already have some type of connection and then you're able mm. to see that in person I don't know I've I've only experienced that once but it was insane like the shit was down the spine it's pretty normal yeah. for me but like shaking and crying like that's I'm awesome. not like someone who shakes <laughs> like that's not me it yeah. was it was Definitely interesting. Yeah. But I do think it is a privilege to have such a reaction to music. And I have noticed that in time periods of my life when I got depressed, or I don't think I've ever fully been depressed. I can't say I've experienced that. But I've experienced dysthymia, and I stopped being interested in music. And it was very different for me. And I knew that something was really wrong. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it's that's so powerful. And one of my really good friends actually string music um, makes her, like, feel tingles. Um, but only, like, yeah. strings. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it's a pleasurable, like, she likes listening to it. A lot of people say classical music has, like, the most, the highest emotional impact on human beings, like, just period. It's probably true. Yeah. Yeah, more mm-hmm. instrumental stuff, mm-hmm. the more power full it is that tends to and there's different types of music that will give me like uh an emotional reaction but there's different types like um you know like bon Iver is going to give me a different reaction than like what techno music i really like is going to make me feel but they're both going to make me feel really pot like powerful positive right. things so in my mind the classical thing is is relevant because classical music is based off counterpoint and there's like a lot a lot of text like you know like hundred piece symphony or 60 piece symphony yes there's groups of instruments but they're each kind of like doing their own thing that kind of, and mm. that's why i think people say it more so represents melodically and and in terms of the arrangement like the human condition whereas like pop music for the most part it's like just hammering the same like the whole group or the whole production yeah. is hammering the same thing yeah i yeah. i get that yeah I, I get that. If you listen to the Twin Peaks theme song and you don't have an extreme emotional reaction, I don't think you can be in my life. What is that? 
Twin Peaks? No, what is the song? Because it's, you posted... It's Julie Cruz. So she's an artist, and I know this because I love Julie Cruz, but she's an artist that all the... So all the lyrics were written by David Lynch, and all the music was written by Badalamente, who did the music for Twin Peaks. Yeah. So she was kind of like a super act via these like just like crazy artist dudes, and she was gotcha. the voice of it. Yeah. Anna, what was that thing you posted the other weekend or not like weeks ago when you were asking everybody like about music on Instagram and then you post I want to say like something about Friday Night Lights it was instrumental and like multiple people had mentioned oh, it um it was probably Explosions in the Sky yes, or maybe the album Leaf no it was Explosions and, in the Sky and both of those uh, along for a very long time, they have been very powerful things for me to listen to. And so I was, what reminded me of the song is I was in a yoga class and the song by, I think it's album Leaf started playing and I started crying in oh, yoga class, so beautiful. which happens to me sometimes. Yeah. They tend to play a lot of the same shit in these yoga classes and it tends to be yeah. very powerful stuff. And then you're just like lying there and you're like crying and you're like, Ugh. what's wrong? And then you're like. You look at your watch, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll leave for work. And then well, it just, the feeling leaves you. <laughs> Luckily, Alyssa is in yoga class with me, and she's like, were you crying, too? And I'm like, yes. Oh. So, you know, there's, I'm like, I'm not too weird, or maybe I am, but my friend's weird, too, so who cares? But, yeah, so, and I went, and I couldn't rem remember the name of the song. I just knew that it brought me back to, like, when I was in college and, like, a very powerful feeling. And I went up to, like, the instructor afterwards, I was like, you have to send me your playlist because I, I need to play that song and then I play it like 200 times, but you know, that's what I do. Yeah, apparently that's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. All <laughs> no, I feel like you're now the, you're the official, um, thank you for this console podcast music expert. <laughs> music pain in the ass. Is really <laughs> music snob. <laughs> Okay, so let me go into some example. Well, before that, so it tends to run in families, synesthesias. Um, the most consistent estimate was one in a thousand with a female to male ratio of two to one. Some studies actually have a higher female number. Um, there's been some links to IBS, a study by Carruthers et al. We'll dive into that when we do brain gut. I don't want to open that now. <laughs> um, and if you're curious, you can um, look into Telogen's synesthesia scale. This is a lot of where the self-reporting comes in. But I think you would know. So let me give you some examples here. Music has a color that's called chromesthesia. Dates of the month or year appear as a shape or length of time correlating to a physical means measure of space. And now this is from a BuzzFeed article. <laughs> and it it I I it, I just I'll read it. So I've seen this for as long as I can remember. It has always looked the same. Each unit, whether lessons, days, weeks, months, or years, is represented by boxes running from right to left. If they existed outside my head, each box would be forty by forty centimeters or so, much like a hopscotch hopscotch square. And I am always standing. Um, and I'm always standing in today. If I'm in a room of people, I can roughly identify who is standing where in time. It's my bizarre party trick. And the, the title of the article is something along the lines of, you know, I found a way to time travel through my thoughts. Or I've spent a lot of time looking at calendars. I don't know. It sounds like, it sounds like visuals, visualizing like a calendar. But wait. The closer a date is to me, the larger it appears. So next week is bigger than next year. I get that. Um, and if I'm reading a history book with lots of dates, then I find myself zooming out to see it in units of decades or even centuries. However, the strangest aspect has to be the direction in which it runs. As the future runs to my left, it curves slightly behind me. This makes sense to me. You can't see the future, so naturally it would be positioned so it disappears from my vision. The past is to my right, but it curves around so that between 1996 and 2000, it completes a U-turn and runs back to the left. The best explanation I have been able to come up with is that uh, that time, which I've lived in, runs right to left, but the point at which my memories give way curves back to resemble the time the timelines I studied in school. Um, and it just goes into a little bit more... Um, 
years form shallow dips with peaks around Christmas and a long, low, flat area around August. If you're really struggling to follow, picture Rainbow Road from Mario Kart, a huge track floating in space. It's something like that, but black and white and with fewer banana skins. And I'll, we'll post that link. I, I, I get it. But I don't think I would ever go as far as to describe to somebody the way I picture my year. But I, she did, and I, I get it. Okay, so I have to ask, what about people seeing auras oh. around others? Am I bringing this up yeah, too early? No, I'm I just have, very excited. Yeah, no, I. That's you're gonna. I have a, a spot for that. Okay. So, okay, words or sound have a taste. I'm just going through more examples. Um, associating colors with vowels, sounds have a smell or texture, and I, I, I texted you when, when I read this, I, I almost started crying because I was like, oh my god, I'm, I'm not a weirdo. Mine is, giving personalities to numbers is an actual thing termed ordinal personification, and an example, um, and again, I almost fell out of my chair when I read this, I could relate so hard. So the example that they gave was, the number three is a young boy eating ice cream, and eight is his sister. Okay, wh- whoever didn't turn off the podcast after <laughs> after listening to that sentence, it validated just how I just how I picture things is how I think. So, and then kind of the last example, and take it away, Anna. Faces or bodies having an aura. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I'd heard about this, and then. I was always waiting. I was like, I hope someone tells me I have an aura around me. And then I won't share details, but someone told me I have a white aura around me. And I was like, yes, I'm an angel. I just needed a validation that I was a good person. Is that the good aura? Is white the good aura? Well, yeah, because you see, I didn't ask them. I wasn't like, what does it mean to you? I didn't press that. But what you could do to understand it is what is the natural association with that color and white is supposed to be pure it's supposed to be good it's supposed to be angelic so now I know I'm all those things (laughs) um anything else about auras (laughs) no I just like I I I am really curious about it and the person who told me this they said that they had a lot of friends who experienced it too and I also met another person in my life maybe actually they were just sharing how someone told them their aura was pink but I think it's well I guess and I did end up discussing this with like one of my supervisors who's a psychologist to get their perspective on it and I guess from a psych perspective what we thought is it's more like you're projecting your feelings about that person into oh. an aura around them oh, so fascinating. so whatever color they're telling you it's really just a way for their truly most likely experiencing that but it's their projection of their feelings about you into a color that represents those feelings that is fascinating if anyone has if anyone sees auras please reach out to us yes <laughs> we'll do please. another yeah we'll, do we'll invite on you on as a guest yes so for all you know someone could have had a really negative association with white yeah you know they That's they nice. certainly could have um but bubble. i took some context <laughs> context cues which i will not share okay. to think that it was a, a positive thing. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Physiology. So I, there's not much on this. I feel, I feel like there should be. Um, the experiences um, of, you know, the synesthesia basically use the same pathways in the brain as color vision, perception, things like that. Um, so, you know, there's... No, there's not supposed to be any connections in between the sensory storage areas in the brain, um, but some studies suggest that there may have been early connections that were made during like early development stages, um, and that you know the brain is is plastic and it can mold and develop. So um, synesthesia is more of like an acquired entity, and it you know it's how you perceived something very early on, and it kind of just. Um, you know, it just kind of ran along that path. Um, and if you if you want to read more on that, it's um, a uh, article which we'll link because I don't have internet right now. So pop culture, and I again, I'm sorry, I love finishing with things like this because it just ties it all together. So um, artists who claim to have synesthesias in you know whichever way um, are 
Uh, this makes sense to me. The three that I, I found are Billy Joel, Mary J. Blige, and Kanye West uh, say that they can either see or feel or, or some type of connection to, to their music. And there is a Russian abstract artist, um, Wassily Kandinsky, who paints to the music he hears. And we, we can maybe post some of his work. So, are you curious if you have a synesthesia? Uh, we'll post some online surveys in, in our Instagram. And, of course, there's a website, synesthesia.com. Um, so, anything else? Do you guys have anything else to add? I feel like I the whole episode, you're both, like, looking up, thinking, yeah. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out how screwed up I really am. <laughs> I was hoping to do the opposite. I was hoping to bring kind of to light some of these oddities some of us experience. Well... You know, going into this episode, I was like, I'm not going to relate to anything. And then listening to it, I was like, oh, maybe I do have a few things along these lines. So I think it's nice to be able to understand myself a little better and perhaps the people around me. Yeah, that was my point. Yeah. And I would say, like, to my earlier point when I was talking about uh, misophonia and like the cliches of like nails on a chalkboard mm-hmm. and stuff, like, honestly, like, it, and I'm not a doctor or as educated in that way as you guys are. But like in my experience, like a lot of these things are true about everybody to just different degrees. Yeah, it's a spectrum. Yeah, so like I think everyone, I mean, unless again I'm being biased because I experience both of these things to different degrees, but like I think everyone can relate to these things. Yeah, You know. and I think it's just a matter of, eh, like yeah, sometimes to debilitating I can't leave my house without my headphones type thing. Yes. Well, thank, thank you, you for, for this, this consult. consult. That was harmony. It was very oh, we're getting better. <laughs> well, our next episode, which we will not be recording for a few weeks, but you will hear in two weeks, will be on bipolar disorder. And I hope you all are excited because it's some good shit. we are. Yes. <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye.